Well, if you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to, we're going to look at two passages in the New Testament, and you might want to kind of maybe stick your bulletin there or put a finger there or one of the visitor cards. We're going to look, we're going to start in Galatians chapter 5, 22 to 23, as we just go back and remember this list of the fruit of the Spirit with a few surrounding verses. And then what we're going to do is we're going to flip over to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And so uh, as you're you're sitting there and finding those passages this morning, I want to tell you a story, something you may be familiar with. In 1964, the first edition of a book was published that has really remained a perennial favorite for almost 50 years. And my guess is almost every one of you have at least heard of it, if not have a copy of it or have held a copy of it or given a copy of it away. And this book extols the virtue of giving self-sacrificially in a relationship, even at great cost to oneself. Uh, But this book has also garnered a lot of criticism over the years. Entire English courses have been taught on the various interpretations of it. Multiple spin-off books have been written mocking the book and correcting the perceived offenses, yet over the course of almost 50 years, millions and millions of copies of this book have been sold. It was even referenced in a popular TV show, actually last year. Here's what it said, the quote, Parents do not have needs. You ever read the book, fill in the blank? It's about a tree, and this kid keeps coming and taking stuff from it his whole life until there's nothing left but a stump. And then the kid sits on the stump. That's being a parent. You may have guessed and figured out by now, I'm referring to the Shel Silverstein book, The Giving Tree. If you can imagine an entire English course being taught on the different interpretations of this book. You know, it's a little skinny book with the green cover, and it's got the tree and the little boy reaching up. The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. You may have read it or at least seen it. And even though you may have known about this book, I I bet you didn't think it was as controversial as it has been over the years. And people have railed against the little boy in the book for never saying thank you. And others have railed against the tree for being a constant enabler. I've always just thought it was just a sweet kid's book about loving someone with everything you have until the very end. That's what I thought the book was about. But apparently there's all this division and courses being written about that and debates I just always thought it was a great little book. But regardless of your position on that book, it does raise some interesting questions that we all instinctively wrestle with at the heart level. And those questions are this, why am I here? And does my life have any purpose? Those are all questions we instinctively wrestle with, right? Why am I here and what is the purpose of my life? And when you think about an apple tree, its entire reason for existing is to grow up and produce apples. And the shade that they provide in the summer is great, but trees don't live forever, and we have even invented uses for the leftover wood. Smoking barbecue with those delicious apple chips, making furniture out of them, you know, the, 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 the tree does what it is designed to do. We have come up with ways of using the wood, but the divinely designed purpose of that tree is to bear apples. That's what it does. It grows up and it bears fruit. And have you ever thought about your Christian life like this? Have you ever wondered, why am I here? For what purpose am I here? Why does this exist? What is my design? And as you know, we've been studying the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5 for the past eight weeks. And I heard them describe, this is a really interesting illustration. They said it, we, we consider them like a, uh, almost like a bunch of grapes. But this person said, actually think about it like segments of an orange. 
They're all one fruit, and these little things connect together. They're like little segments. They all come together as one fruit. And we've been called to pray for them, examine ourselves to see if they're growing, to focus on Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we've talked about how they're like seeds planted in our hearts at the moment of regeneration by the Holy Spirit and how they grow with the Holy Spirit's help. Over the course of our lives, we've, we've talked about that they're gifts of grace. They're gifts given to us. They're not trophies to be won. They're gifts that are given to us by a loving and gracious God. And we've learned a lot about what they are. But have you ever wondered what those nine fruits are to be used for? We know what they are, but what are they for? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's, look, let's start in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 25, and then we will flip over to the left and go to Matthew chapter 5. So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 5, 20, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let's go to the left and go to Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll look at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13 through 16, a very familiar passage for us this morning. Here's what the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and I am grateful for that. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we look to your word, we pray, O Father, in these moments that you would re-describe reality to us, remind us of who you are, remind us of all that you have done, remind us of Christ and this work of redemption. We pray, O Lord, that you, by by your Spirit, would challenge and convict us, O Lord, and help us to sit at your feet in this moment. Please hide me behind the cross, and Father, please lead the way and call us to follow you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning and kind of wrap up our study on the fruit of the Spirit that we spent the past, past few weeks looking at, I want to remind you of a sign that hangs in the hallway above the coffee pot that explains the vision of Grace Presbyterian Church. It reads in big letters, grace to us, grace through us. And as, as we've mentioned before, things like that sign, they usually attract attention for the first few weeks. But then after a while, they kind of fade into the background as they get familiar to us. Remember, we've talked about you go to a, like a beach house or a mountain house and you open up the blinds for the first time and you just kind of stand in awe of the view. But after a day or two, that beautiful view that took your breath away suddenly fades. It gets familiar to us. It may have happened with that sign there. And as you may recall, each of the fruit that we've studied, we've always gone back to the source of each fruit, which is God himself. And then put each fruit in its proper gospel order. And so we've talked about we are called to examine the fruit of love. Why? Because God loved us first. 
So we remember the source of love himself. We love because he first loved us, and we put it in that proper order. Here's what Christopher Wright said about this. He said, the kind of attitudes and behaviors that Paul lists come not from the rules you keep, but from the person you are. Or rather, to be more specific, this way of living flows from the person you are becoming as you become more and more like Christ. Or to be more specific still, such behavior flows from the person who dwells within you as Christ is formed in you. And the Spirit of Christ bears his fruit in your life. So we think about this wrap-up kind of series this morning. I want us to take a cue from the sign in the hall. And I want us to think fruit to us, fruit through us. Fruit to us, fruit through us. Those are going to be our two main points this morning as we look at a call to fruitful living. What are we to do with these fruit of the Spirit? Fruit to us, fruit through us. So let's look at that first point, fruit to us. As we look at this list in Galatians 5, to 23, we need to remember that larger context. And the big idea of Paul's letter in, to the Galatians is Christ's death and resurrection has ushered in a new covenant uh, people, new covenant for the people of God, and one that is marked by grace and heart change. And outward rituals and law-keeping are no longer required for salvation. And to require these things is to deny the heart of the gospel, which is justification by faith alone not by outward obedience to the law. And in this new covenant, Christians are to live in the guidance and under the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit as the Lord changes our hearts. And so we've always said that the gospel starts and changes us from the inside out. And as we look at this, look at verse 1 of chapter 5 in Galatians there, if you still have it open. Here's how Paul starts chapter 5. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then what you see in verses 19 to 21 in the lead-up to this passage is Paul gives us a list of the fruit or the works of the flesh to show the destruction that unchecked sin leaves in its wake and the eternal consequences of it. Basically what Paul is saying is if you have bad roots, you get bad fruit. And we have this list, this contrast that's there. And Galatians warns us that this fruit can actually look very religious. The body can look very spiritual while the heart is far from God because it's still only focused on self. And we see these fruit of the flesh that are there. And, but then we, we, we hear the bad news here that we cannot produce these fruit on our own strength apart from Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. We've been reminded over and over again in the entire book of Galatians and a lot of Paul's writing is basically reminding us that a self-salvation project is a fool's errand. We can't do it. We need the work of the Spirit. Paul says that we're in bondage. We're slaves to sin apart from Christ. And so if you are here and you do not trust Christ as Lord, whether you believe it or not, this is actually your true condition. A sinner in the sight of a holy God justly deserving his wrath and displeasure. It's the bad news. You are not a free, independent, moral agent. You are not neutral. Sin is calling the shots, and it is leading you off a cliff towards eternal destruction. That's where you are. If you do not have Christ, you are being led off a cliff. Bob Dylan famously wrote, you got to serve somebody. It may be devil, or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. The fact that none of us in this room are neutral. We are all being led around by something or someone. 
And as Dylan reminded us, you see that the devil or the Lord. You got to serve somebody. None of us are neutral. And the good news, I mean, the bad news of that is we can't produce this fruit on our own. God's holy and we're not. That's bad news, right? So we can't save ourselves. But here's where the good news comes in. This is the good news of the gospel. Because God the Father has made a way for us through his Son, which is the most amazing news we could ever hear. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 24 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so we have this list that Paul gives us in the preceding verses in Galatians 5, the fruit of the flesh, the fruit of, this, of what sin brings and wreaks havoc in this life. But now we're, giving a, now we're given a contrasting view of a life lived under the authority of Christ and under the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. Notice where it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. So in, in contrast to these, here's a new way to live. Here's a new way to think about your life. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and we get this wonderful list that we've been looking at, that instead of leading to death under the power of sin, a, live life, a life lived under the power of the Spirit leads to life. It changes us. As the verse 1 says, it sets us free. Look at the second half of verse 23 where it says, against such things there is no law. We get the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And you think, what in the world is that? What we're seeing here is a heart that's been truly set free by the gospel of grace does not need to be legislated by law. These fruit naturally flow out. They naturally flow out of a heart that's been redeemed. And John Calvin said, the death of the flesh is the life of the spirit. That we're not to be ruled by law. We're not to be ruled by our sinful nature. Look at verse 25. It says, and if we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. Walk under the Spirit's guidance. Walk under the Spirit's direction. Be led by someone else who is leading us into life. And notice that this verse has a statement of fact. It says, we live by the Spirit. And then a command, let us then also walk by the Spirit. And you'll notice here that, again, this is a statement of fact driving a command. Or as we have said, the indicative drives the imperative. So, as we live by the Spirit... Let us now, in light of that, walk by the Spirit. And it's good to get those things in the right order. Again, Christopher Wright said this. He said, that means we are spiritually alive because God has given us a new life through His Spirit. And it all begins when we're born again through faith in Jesus Christ. At that moment, God takes up residence in our lives through the presence of His Holy Spirit, which is, of course, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So we think about these fruit that have come to us in grace, and we remember the grace of God to us. We remember the fruit of the Spirit that flow out of that saving grace, this fruit that has come to us by grace. Every one of them is a gift of grace. And like the tree in that book, we are divinely designed to bear spiritual fruit in our lives. This says this is what God is going to do with you over the course of your life. These fruit are going to bear are going to grow in your life with the Lord's help. But if you ever ask the question, why? Okay, so these fruit have come to us by grace. But what are they for? Why? Fruit to us, point one. 
Point two, fruit through us. This is the why. What are they there for? And we talk about being saved from the wrath of God, but you ever wondered what are you saved for? We know we're saved from, but what are we saved for? What's the purpose? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look at, July, um, look at John 15, 8, which is our July memory verse that we've been looking at. We recited it earlier. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, ask a wonderful question. What is the chief end of man? Why are we here? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, for His glory. Simply put, we are designed to bear spiritual fruit for the glory of God and for the good of others while we live in the midst of a broken and fallen world awaiting Christ's return. And this is where Matthew 5, 13 to 16 comes in. So let's flip over there. We've noticed this fruit of the Spirit that have come to us by the, the work of the Spirit at conversion. But now we're asking, why? What are they for? This is where Matthew 5, 13 to 16 comes in. As you're flipping over there, this passage is part of a larger sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus is contrasting two cultures, two kingdoms, the kingdom of earth versus the kingdom of heaven. And again, we're reminded that your, your allegiance is in one or the other. There's no neutrality. You know, we say we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. There's no neutrality there. Neutrality is a myth. So it's either the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of heaven. There's no neutrality. And Jesus is describing the kingdom that he came to establish. People called by grace, called out to be holy and set apart, different from the world around them. And you have this list of beatitudes, which is this list of characteristics that Jesus says should define those who follow him. Things like humility and meekness and mercy and peacemaking and purity and persecution. The list goes on. And now Jesus uses two important metaphors to describe how Christians are to stand out in a broken and fallen world. Those two ways are to be salt and to be liked. So what are we here for? That's this. And again, you look at this first illustration of salt. And we probably all at some point love salty foods, fries, chips, pretzels, popcorn, etc. Imagine how your favorite snack would actually taste if the salt was removed. Probably not very good. Salt takes a good thing. It enhances it. We love salt for its taste-enhancing qualities, but in Jesus' time, it was way more valuable than just that. It was also a preservative. You may have heard this before. It was used to prevent rot, to decay. There was no refrigerator around back in that day, and they used, this to, they used salt to preserve. They used it for hygiene. Newborn babies were rubbed in salt. And it's also been mentioned that it was so valuable, Roman soldiers were often paid in it. You have the phrase salary, your, your salt, and you've heard the phrase, that person's not worth his salt. That's where you get that from. And so if Jesus is comparing his kingdom to salt, what is he saying about the rest of the world? He's saying that the rest of the world is decaying. And it doesn't take long for us to think about how we see this in the world around us, this culture of death and Everywhere we look around, it's just death and destruction and selfishness. And it doesn't take long for us to see that the world around us is just decaying. And so if the world around us is decaying, why in the world would Jesus want to set up his kingdom here? As Philippians 2 says, to redeem it, 
to rescue it, to restore it, and to preserve a people for himself, his bride, the church. And so what's he saying that the role of those in his kingdom play? What are we here for if we are part of his kingdom? We're called to stop the decay. We're called to step into the midst of that. Notice he does not say, go be like salt. He says, you are salt. Statement of fact. It's inescapable. And so we're called to engage with the world around us. We're called to, in many ways, to flavor it, to to season it with the gospel, to do what is good, to redeem it. We're not called to withdraw into a holy huddle. We're not called to just hang out together in the salt shaker. There's a wonderful little book on evangelism called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. Wonderful description. We're not called just to huddle up and just all hang out together in the salt shaker. We're called to go and to season the world around us, to stop the decay, to go out. Not to withdraw into a holy huddle. Not to just share these fruit of the Spirit with each other. But we're called to be a blessing to our neighbor. And you see, what does Jesus say about salt losing its taste? How does that happen? We think about how salt influences the food it contacts. And this is what Jesus is saying about influence. Christians are called to be different to flavor and influence the world for Christ. We're called to be salty, not in like the old sailor way. You know, you have salty language, he's a salty dog. Not in that way, okay? We're called to be salty. What that means is we're called to be distinct. We're called to season the world around us, to engage with it. And this is really hard to do in our culture, which is balance between engaging the culture and not losing our flavor or influence. That's why we need the Spirit's help. And being salty in the world may even sting. But we're called to be faithful to Jesus. Here's what Lloyd-Jones said, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. And again, I'm reminded that you see, when you look around the world and kind of the trajectory of churches, the kind of these mainline denominations that have given up on the truthfulness of the gospel, they've given up on the truthfulness of the word, they're emptying out. They're emptying out. Because what they have to offer is not any different than the world around them. But churches that are talking about the gospel, that are talking about the sinfulness of man, the need for Christ, the need for repentance, the, you know, these churches are growing. It's amazing when you look even around the world. I think even in these closed-off countries where people are very hostile to Christianity, these churches are growing by leaps and bounds in the backyard of China and Africa and Malaysia. And the gospel's going forth as these, season, as these Christians are going in and seeking to to spread the gospel. And so you think, how can we as a church use our individual skills and gifts in conjunction with these fruit of the Spirit for the glory of God in our own town? How can we go out, use all of our unique differences and backgrounds and experiences and things that we're good, how can we use them for the glory of Christ in our own backyard for our neighbors? Jesus says that we are salt. That's what we are. But he also says we're something else, doesn't he? He we're light. Look at that. Jesus uses the metaphor of light to describe those in his kingdom. And we're really, even though we kind of live what we would say out here in the middle of nowhere, we really aren't. And we, we rarely are confronted with total darkness. But in Jesus' day, it was actually very normal. You know, there weren't street lights and all this other stuff. You know, when it got dark, it was dark. 
And as we continue to think about influence, what is the purpose of light according to Jesus? And what does he link light to? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And what is the result? The glory of God. And our light, our good works, draw attention to how God is at work in a broken world. It draws attention to his kingdom, not our own. And we're not called to keep the light to ourselves. We're called to share it, aren't we? What's that look like? We enter into the train wreck of sin, and we declare that a new kingdom has broken through, that there is a new king who is on the throne, and he is ruling, and he is reigning right now, and that king came not to be served, but to serve, and that his kingdom looks completely different from the world around us. But there is a new king who sits on the throne, and his name is King Jesus, and he rules and reigns, and his kingdom has broken through, and he has promised that he will return in glory one day. And so we as a church, have you ever thought about the fact that you are actually a spiritual monarchist? That you have bowed the knee to King Jesus. You have a king. And he rules and reigns. And he's a good king. And his kingdom's good. And it's right. And it's just. But it is a kingdom that is not of this world. But you actually have bowed the knee to King Jesus. Now imagine that apple tree in the giving tree looking at the little boy and telling him to go get a job and get your own apples. Do you imagine that? That'd be a really short book. The kid comes up to the tree and, hey, I'd like an apple. Get a job. Okay? <laughs> Nobody would want to buy that book, would it? It would be called The Selfish Tree, and it would be one page long. Now, imagine Jesus telling you to go do it all on your own. Go straighten up. Go do it all on your own. That would be an absolutely hopeless situation, would it not? Sadly, this is what many people think Christianity is and how it works. Sadly, this is what many non-Christians have been treated like. They've been told to go straighten up and clean themselves up before you can truly arrive and ascend the high moral mountain that we have beaten you to somehow. That's not how Christianity works. If that's the way that Christianity functions, then our Bible would only be two pages long. I've talked about this before. You think about God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in the garden. He gave them one rule, right? What was it? Don't touch that tree. Don't eat of the tree. Don't eat of the tree. Stay away from the tree, right? How long did it take before Adam and Eve, our parents, sinned and fell? Page and a half, right? Page and a half in the Bible. Two pages if you've got a study Bible or a large print. And that's being generous. And so you think about just as absurd as it would be that the, that the giving tree could be renamed the selfish tree and be only one page long. If Christianity works like that, your Bible would literally be a page and a half long, and that's it. But it's not, is it? It's not. And that's why we remember the gospel. And we think about that tree. It loved that little boy to the very end, all the way down to the stump, didn't it? You think about that quote that this person said, that the boy just keeps coming to the tree and the tree keeps giving, and even when the tree's left a stump, the boy still comes and sits on the stump, right? And he said, that's what being a parent's like. You think oftentimes our world and our lives look like that dead stump, but there's life in that stump because God's kingdom is broken through. All of this was promised. Think about Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And not only was that promised, it was actually delivered. Promises made, promises kept. John chapter 1, 29 to 32. The next day, 
he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And you ask, so what? So what? Why should I care? If you are here and you are a Christian, we are all empowered by that same Holy Spirit to herald the return of the King and to bear good fruit for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. Martin Luther again famously said, God does not need your good works. He used a little bit more salty language in the bad way. God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. That's the call. We're called to obey the Great Commission. Go therefore into all the nations and make disciples and go out. But we're also called to obey the Great Commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Go out and as you do, go love them. Why? Because you're awesome? No. Because you go, you go to them and go to this watching world out of your own sense of need. We go because we were bought back from the grave at great cost and given a new heart by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, as revealed in the Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Why? To bear much fruit for the glory of that God that saved us and redeemed us and rescued us. We want to bring Him glory. It is our heart's desire. If that's true, that you love me, when I was at my most unlovable, if that's true, which it is, my heart's desire is I want to glorify you in all that I do. I want to use these fruit that you have given to me by grace. I want to use them for your glory. And you constantly read, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory and again, it's just a radical call of the gospel for all of us to get over ourselves and to go and bring glory to our God who has done everything to rescue and redeem us. It's the, go it's the gospel. It's an amazing promise. It's an amazing reminder. All that we have is by grace. As we remember this, we remember Ephesians 2, 4 through 8. I'm almost done. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming, of coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. That is the amazing thing about all of this. Fruit of the Spirit, the Gospel, Jesus, every bit of it is a gift of His grace. None of us deserved it. None of us have earned it. None of us have merited it. That's what makes it good news. That's why it's a reason to get up in the morning, is it not? All of this is a gift of His grace. Given to us when we were at our most unlovely. Actually, we were shaking our fist at him. Where we were his enemies, Christ died for us. All of this is a gift. It's amazing. The gospel changes absolutely everything. It changes how we see our lives. It changes how we see our families. It changes how we see our vocations. As one of my seminary professors said, from vacation to vocation and everything in between. The gospel changes absolutely everything. 
We love, we bear fruit in this life. Why? Because he loved us first. We go show patience. Why? Because he was patient with us first. Put that in the right order. Just go down the list in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Why? Why are we called to go and exhibit those fruit? Because God has been that to us first. And we want to mirror him and bring him glory. As we say, guess what? I'm able to go love the most unlovable person that I can think of because that was me apart from Christ. Because God chose to set his love on me first. Isn't that a good reason to go use those fruit? Because they have been shown to you first as a gift of grace. Now there go forth, go forth and show that you are a disciple, that your heart has been changed as you bear much fruit in the world around you, not for your own glory, but for the glory of the God who bought you back at great cost to himself by sending his own son to die in your place. Once you get that, once it gets in your bones, it changes everything. Absolutely changes everything. Grace to us, great grace through us. Fruit to us. Fruit through us. Now, do you remember the criticism that that TV show had against the Giving Tree book? Remember that quote the person said? It's about a tree, and this kid keeps coming and taking stuff from it his whole life until there's nothing left but a stump. And then the kid sits on the stump. That's like being a parent. When you think about the gospel account, you think about what Jesus has done. Jesus loved us to the very end, all the way down to the stump, didn't he? Loved us all the way to the stump. All the way. And that's being a savior. That's what it took. All the way down to the stump for you and for me. So that he could secure for us an inheritance that's being stored up for us that is too wonderful to even consider. And it is his joy to give it to us because we've been adopted by grace. Isn't that good? Jesus loved us all the way to the stump for his glory. And for our good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and this great reminder of the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, as we consider this list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We again remember that we can't do this on our own. It has to be a gift of your grace. It has to be a work of your Spirit. And so, Father, we come before you and we ask again, Lord, would you please take these fruit and work them in our hearts, O Lord. Give us more of those. Lord, we pray that they would just spill out of us as we stand in awe of the gospel of grace, as we stare at Christ and we dwell upon his beauty and we dwell upon all that he has done for us, O Lord, and your good heart, your compassionate heart. Lord, we pray that you would work these fruit into our lives, not just for our own glory, not for us, O Lord, not for us, but for your glory. And Lord, give us courage as we go out and we are salt and light. We are already that because of Christ. And Lord, give us the courage to be able to do that. Give us the opportunities to share our faith with the dying world around us, O Lord. To point to Jesus. To point to a new kingdom that is broken through. To point to a new way of living. Lord, and I pray if there's anyone here that does not know you and is trying to live a life far apart from you and trying to be the monarch of their own little kingdom, O Lord, that they would see the foolishness of that endeavor. And that they would flee to Christ. That they would see their sin. They would see their need for a Savior and flee. I even pray for those of us who do know you, O Lord. We're so prone to want to build our own little kingdoms and be their own little monarch of our own little world. And I pray that we would repent. And that we would run back to the King. 
and know that your heart is good. Thank you for this list of the fruit of the Spirit. Thank you, O oh Lord, that you, all of these are gifts of grace. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you loved us all the way down to the stump. And Father, we pray that you would help us to lean into this gospel and that you would help us to share the best news that humanity could hear. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.